Welcome to the Razor's Edge. I'm Daniel Schwarzman. I'm joined by Seeking Alpha author Akram's Razor on this show. Each episode, we take an investing idea or theme that Akram has been looking at for his personal investing, as well as the Seeking Alpha marketplace service he runs, also called the Razor's Edge. We look at the ideas themselves, stress test them, try to figure out where they might go right or wrong, talk about what's been going on, and talk about the research and analysis that led to this take. The idea is to share some current investing ideas for your consideration, but also get the ins and outs of deep fundamental market research today. This week's topic has a lot behind it. The ticker symbol is NVTA, the stock is Invitae. Akram released a short case on the company on Seeking Alpha on October 11th that went long in terms of breaking down why the genetic testing company was more like a WeWork than an Amazon. In other words, the company has had prodigious revenue growth, but it's come at a cost of increasingly negative cash flows and a limited competitive advantage in Akram's view. It was a thoroughly researched short case, and as is often the case, it's attracted a lot of attention, both positive and negative. On today's Razor's Edge, we're going to talk about what brought Akram to this case, what investors are missing, and some of the reactions since he went public on Invitae. We're also joined by a colleague of Akram's, James, who can add some insight on this topic based on research he's done on the stock as well. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a podcast on Seeking Alpha's The Investing Edge channel. The views discussed belong to either Akram, James in this case, or me, respectively, and nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast, though up front I can say I have no positions in any of the stocks we plan to discuss. Akram is short NVTI and long Myriad Genetics, and James is short NVTI. We're recording this on the morning of November 4th. All right, guys, good morning. Welcome. Good, good morning. Good morning, thanks. So let's just go really basic. Why NVTI? What brought, why does your radar get on this stock? Where did it come up? That's definitely an interesting part of the story. I guess the starting point was. There was there was people shorting Myriad, so I follow the Southern Investigative Reporter, and they'd done a couple short pieces on that, and I'd kind of you know taken a look at it briefly, which caused me to take a brief look at Invitai, and that was probably like May or June, and then Illumina missed big time on earnings, and I've traded Illumina several times of the year. I've never I've never traded any of these other stocks in terms of that, but it kind of got me interested in the space. And I guess what kind of I mean, like I think I'd pinged James on it a couple times, being like, yeah, "This this is like you know, this is worth looking into." But like neither of us had really gotten that excited about it. And then uh, there was a report that came out by a short seller recommending the stock is an amazing long idea which I read because I know the short seller and his work. Once I read that, I was like, hmm, I need to look at this company a little closer. And then just, you know, the typical process, you know, like pulling up their filings, seeing exactly what's going on financially. And I was just like, wow, this is just a, a, <laughs> an incinerator. What are they doing? Why is, like, what's the business model? And that brought me to, you know, there's uh, an author on Seeking Alpha who'd published a lot on this over the years, Capital Markets Laboratories, and read their work. And uh, 
they made these Amazon compares where obviously that's where, you know, you get a little bit of a heightened radar when a, a laboratory diagnostic company is being compared to Amazon, which, I mean, I don't know also if you know, it, it, in, I, I had like a brief experience with Theranos in 2000, let's say like early 2014, like back when it was like, I was picking on uh, the the Decacorns then, my, my okay. favorite, like when I used to write my, my market commentary and I'd have a little bit of fun with it. At the time, the two I was having fun with were Zenefits and, and Theranos. Uh, but I mean, in Theranos' case, like, you know, uh, I was just curious as far as what, like, I mean, it was a private company, $10 billion, obviously a lot of hype. I was like, well, do I short Quest and LabCorp, right? I mean, I can't make, I can't invest in Theranos, but if this company is so revolutionary, like it, there's a pretty simple thesis out there in the public markets where, I mean, you know, if they're going to stick a lab in a box, I should go short Quest Diagnostics and uh, LabCorp. And, you know, I have on the medical side, you know, an extensive network, uh, friends and, and family. So I ended up doing just one call with someone who'd, who'd been at Quest and in, in the laboratory diagnostic space, pretty senior for about 20 years. And like, I mean, it was, it was like a 30 minute conversation. I felt stupid by the time it was, it was over. It was just like, he's like, you know. Are, are, are you an idiot? You can't stick a lab in a box. <laughs> you know, it was like, it, it was literally like that, you know, after like being very polite for a little while. So like, you know, you, th that type of stuff kind of, you know, intrigued me. And, uh, you know, Theranos ended up being Theranos. I never really did much more with it after that. And then, you know, Wall Street Journal came after it and it became this cautionary tale. Uh, I don't know if James, did you follow Theranos very close? I don't even know if we really discussed that. No, I, I had heard from some VC friends who were very skeptical of it all the way through. Um, but I wasn't that close to the, the name myself. Yeah, I mean, neither of us, I would say, I would characterize myself as close to it. But I mean, I did take the time to literally be like, hey, do I short these stocks because of Theranos, right? It was like a, a, an investment idea at the time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's what started it, right? I mean, like Theranos had this uh, and then the message was just kind of just like, you know, affordable blood testing for all uh, social cause, you know, being compared more to like, you know, technology differentiating companies. And, you know, I mean, Elizabeth Holmes liked to associate herself with when she talked about things, you know, when she compares herself to the Google founders and Facebook and like I mean if you saw the documentary she's like oh, hey, we were at in, in Brazil and this is where we were, who was sitting there and you know the Google guys and the Amazon and and, and the Facebook and you know and we are we're the stars of the show right and if you look at Invitae I mean like on the surface it's like you know there's a social enterprise element to it right where it's just like we we're, we have a mission and this mission is uh you know, to make genetic testing affordable for all. I mean, like they, they, they don't, they don't care. They don't describe themselves as like a laboratory diagnostics company, right? Well, They're they, like a genetic, genetic information company. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, if you look, I've got their 10 K open their last one and it's 
Our goal is to aggregate a majority of the world's genetic information into a comprehensive network that enables sharing of data among network participants to improve healthcare and clinical outcomes. So it's this. Yeah. So what does that mean? <laughs> right. You know, it's this very, very big mission, right? This very big. Yeah. I mean, James obviously has some views on this. Like, I mean, what do you think of that part? Well, I think that really comes down to the crux of, of the investment case here, right? Which is just because something sounds good as a sound bite doesn't mean that it actually makes sense as business. And so the idea of accumulating the world's genetic information, you would argue, seems like if you could do that, would allow you to capture rents on that database. But there are very real issues with that. Um, namely, that the company has said that they won't do that. And then when they're pressed about how, you know, whether or not they will do that, they kind of seem to give non-answers from what I can tell. So that's one of the questions, right, that, that I think would be very helpful for the company to lay out there very specifically, which is if we gather all this data up and specifically what data is being gathered, are they, is that data they've also released to a common database like they say they have been doing? Is there additional data that they're not releasing? Well, I mean, the, da the data they're, sh they're sharing with the common database is, is the variant of unknown significance data, right? So, I mean, that's what they're contributing to ClinVar. We don't really know. But like, I mean, I I'll be honest. Like, if I was to go in and have a hereditary cancer test, I would have never thought once about, like, who the lab doing the test is or ask the oncologist anything. But, like, literally now, knowing this business, I'd be like, make sure you're not using Invitae. Because I, I, I have no clue what they're going to do with that data. I mean, like, you know, my, my DNA is a product for them to, to figure out somewhere down the road to, to do something with it. I mean, I, I, it's so, like, like, like James has said, it's, it's very bizarrely unclear, which is decidedly convenient when you're running a business model like this. So step, step back for a second. So the, the, thesis, the company's thesis is that they're providing genetic tests and then they're aggregating that they provide it at you know, arguments are that providing it for below the cost that they actually have to pay to uh, their providers to actually deliver the test, but low cost testing that they can then, the if we're going to use the Silicon Valley uh, jargon, they, they get the flywheel of more genetic data and improve, they get a lot of volume and eventually that's both going to give them scale to lower the cost, but then also they're aggregating this huge genetic database, which in theory, which as you kind of point out, they're going to have to do something with uh, to make it reasonable, which raises concerns in and of itself. But the idea is that eventually they'll get scale from offering at cost that will allow them to become a profitable business, I think. That's that's how I understood the the company's take and the company's argument. Yeah, well, I mean, like, like James just said, the company hasn't explained that. So if you look at this company's history, this isn't like a startup, number one, right? So... This is company was founded in 2009. They've been at this for a decade. Okay, initially they were kind of rare disease focused, right? Like where they're deriving their revenue. If they were to actually describe themselves accurately, they would be like, "We do hereditary cancer testing, far cheaper than Myriad, right?" And I mean, like, I I think that's an important thing to look at. This, I mean, their 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 sources of revenue which is generally speaking what has attracted people to this stock it's not science right it's not like you've developed a test or you're like foundation medicine and you've got this companion diagnostic that clinical trials and 
you're about to do something where you're going to earn a high margin because you've developed something nobody else has. That's typically, you know, what people get excited about in science and biotechnology, right? You get rewarded for R&D, okay? These guys have approached the market. Myriad discovered the BRCA mutation in 1994, okay? That's like the indication of hereditary cancer, right? And understand, cancer, 90% of it is not hereditary. So you're looking, when you, when you talk hereditary, there's a less than 10% chance that it's something hereditary that's, that, that's helpful from a clinical standpoint uh, as far as your treatment for, for you know, um, uh, cancer diagnosis, whether it's early or late stage or whatnot. So this company came into this space in, in the sense that Myriad had a monopoly on this gene, right? They started doing their, their first BRCA testing lab kit was like 1996. They had the patent on that gene till 2013 when the Supreme Court struck it down, right? So these guys entered this space essentially from that standpoint as a competitor against Myriad. And, and once that space kind of opened up in hereditary cancer testing, being like, well, you can't patent these genes, right? Which is great for competition, but what's the flip side of it? If I make a major discovery on gene X correlates to disease Y, right, and I can't patent it, and I'm running like a test that kind of identifies that historically, kind of tough to build a very profitable business around it. So when we go back to like what you were saying about like this whole genetic information and wh whatnot, the most interesting thing about this business is look at the rest of the landscape nobody's nobody's selling this story like myriad's still the the revenue leader in hereditary cancer testing the other the other space the company is in deriving revenue from is reproductive health you know carrier screening uh, non-invasive prenatal screens and that's the most crowded market ever you know it's got illumina and uh and uh sequinum which is owned by LabCorp. like pretty much you know they control the ip there and then there's like a half a dozen other competitors owned by large companies. So like in hereditary cancer, you've got Myriad and then you kind of have this like at a huge, huge, huge discount to Myriad prices in Vitae, right? I mean, like now they're running what, $99 tests, okay? So you look at it and you can sit here we can just we, we like figuring out what they want to do data wise and the fact that it's vague is kind of important but it's also important in the context of well there's a whole industry here right i mean this is a, at least you know when when you know people we got some heat when we cautioned this like uh, and some 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 of this has attracted obviously a lot of retail investors by by using the amazon compare and you know, in the initial thesis, there was like a cautionary mention at the end, like, you know, the, the, that the, the laboratory diagnostic space doesn't need another Theranos. And at least in Theranos' case, what they were selling to investors was we're building a better mousetrap, essentially, right? Like we've got, the, we've engineered something that's going to change the way we are able to do testing. And that's not the story here. The story here, I mean, if you go back to the founder in 2016, there's a couple interviews with him and he, he literally says like, we're providing the same tests that everyone else is providing. We're just making them more affordable. That was, that's their initial story, right? 
So, I mean, you, you do kind of run into something like that, which is where, like, you know, some people may think it like, you know, oh, it's very, you know, self-serving or opportunistic to compare this to WeWork. It is exactly like WeWork from a business standpoint. Like, you can't get around that fact. And I think the, the Amazon, like, and this is not like, you know, some, you know, guy writing a really bullish seeking alpha article and, and, and using hyperbole. The management sticks the compares. I mean, they, they, they literally they have a slide in their investor deck, what we can learn from Amazon. And they make statements like our competitors. What did they say, James? It's like the competitor's margin is our opportunity or. Yeah, something to that effect. Yeah, you've, you've covered a lot of ground there. I think that the, you know, the important aspect of, of what you've said, the commonality among all those points is that the management team has, you know, made some very high level statements about the promise of this industry and the promise of their company. And they could really answer a lot of these questions if they wanted to, right? They could say, okay, here is our revenue breakdown from, you know, from cancer versus NIPS versus kind of other, other panels which don't have necessarily the clinical efficacy. Or they could say, you know, here's our, here's what we're getting from the various, uh, various cost cutting or, or networks effects or economies of scale that we promise, you know, and here's how this is going to develop, but they don't, they just say, trust us, it's all going to work out. And the way that you know, it's all going to work out is that it worked out for Amazon. So it's, there's not much transparency. There's a lot of just kind of big picture verbiage, I would say. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. And like, I mean, you you get the Amazon story, Daniel, right? I mean, if you look at it, people are like, you're like, well, come on, Amazon was losing money. No, Amazon was improving operating cash flow from literally from day one. I mean, people forget like you make money selling DVDs and uh, and books online, particularly if you don't pay your suppliers right. for a hundred days, right? Uh, I mean, like it, it. Where was Amazon after a decade? It was already a behemoth, right? So when you look at it, Amazon had someone else, i.e. their their suppliers, funding their growth. It's free, cheap capital. This company, when it IPO'd in 2015 at $16 a share, had like 25 million shares outstanding. They're at 100 now, four years later, right? I mean, it's like they keep going back to the well. So if you're an investor and you're looking at it from, you know, a return on investment on, on money you're giving them, I mean, you have a serious problem. And if you look at it and you say, hey, I'm going to compare myself to Amazon. Well, Amazon had a cost structure that attacked this cost structure of brick and mortar. Okay. They benefited from so many things. You, we didn't have sales taxes if you were paying on Amazon as a consumer. They benefited from the fact that they went into markets with huge existing volume already, books and DVDs. They didn't have to convince people you know, to buy X, Y, and Z. They were already huge volume markets. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but like hereditary cancer testing, it's not something people get excited about to go online or, or buy as a gift right. for a friend, you know? I mean, like we, we get the DTC space and even that has already slowed down drastically and that's Ancestry. And if Ancestry slowed down at like 30 million tests, right? Like you really think people like uh, are, are going to be super excited as, as individual consumers, you know, to be like, ah, I really need to figure out whether I have a history of cancer right now. I mean, <laughs> well, and more importantly, more importantly, I think there's a there's a 
you know, healthy amount of skepticism in the medical community whether or not these tests are useful, right? Like the, the, the issue with any test is if you find something, an indicator of a disease, you know, does that help you catch the disease? Does it help you catch it earlier than existing testing or physical exams or, you know, other, other ways of seeing the diseases there? And then can you do anything about it? So I think one of the issues here is even if you were to send your, your saliva sample out and you came back with a, you know, say an indication that you might have liver cancer potentially, A, you wouldn't know if that were real because it's really just a correlation at this point. There's, there's not enough data. B, even if you knew it was real, there's not, really not much to do except worry about it. And so, you know, you'll have a lot of additional burdens on the patient and the healthcare system in terms of emotional and financial burdens without any clear benefit. And so I think within, you know, as, as Ockham was saying, within, within breast cancer, there is a clear benefit, you know, in terms of efficacy and, and outcomes. Uh, but for the rest of the space, it's really not clear. And that's why, you know, if you look at the, the treatment protocols for most of the commercial payers, they don't pay for a lot of these tests because the, the research doesn't demonstrate that they should. So one of the things I am, as we're throwing around these comparisons, uh, I'm thinking about the, there's a notion in Silicon Valley and sort of abroad the market, the idea of tech comp, tech as a category is becoming less and less meaningful because companies are adopting online models or tech models to different verticals. And what I think about with Theranos and Invitai specifically, healthcare is a very complicated sector, both in terms of the way payers work, and we can get into Medicare in a little bit, but the way the payment system works, and I'm not talking even about what might or might not happen in the future with changes to insurance, but just that's, I think, always been fairly, op- you have to really work through it. And, you know, in the articles, for example, there's looking at the different re- reimbursement codes and that sort of thing. Like it's more than you have to do to figure out, well, are they going to buy this software tool or not? And then also, you know, Theranos was a problem because they were actually, there were issues of fraud around people, things that were supposed to help people's health. And so I guess I'm just kind of, I guess I wanted to hear a little bit more about like, because a lot of the response. Well, I mean, look, let's, I mean, if you think about Theranos, where really was the fraud? The fraud, like, I mean, if you read the indictment, what she's really on the hook for the biggest time is misleading investors. Okay. I mean, that's the biggest part. Yes, correct. Like at the end, there was issues with the lab testing and they were getting inaccurate results because by the time she did that deal with Walgreens and uh, it, clearly they were at a point where they were they were desperate for showing meaningful revenue because they need to raise more cash, right? Because they still haven't made the Edison mm-hmm. work, right? They're trying to engineer a problem. They're working on it. She didn't set out to commit fraud, right? She set out to build you know, to, to, to stick a lab in a box, right? But she had bigger aspirations. She wanted to take that. She wanted to aggregate your data. She wanted to stick it in this cloud called Yoda, right? I mean, if you look today, you still have people who defend her. I mean, what's his name? Uh, uh, yeah, they, yeah. Tim Draper, talking. Tim Draper, Tim Draper has really defended her. And what does he defend her on the point? And his point is that, look, she had this vision to, to give you a, a movie of your health, i.e. like, look, I get my blood work once a month. And that goes into a cloud, right? And my my physician can track it, and I'm building a historical picture, you know, of a trend 
by having more real-time information on, on my, you know, on my blood work, cholesterol, everything, right? So that creates preventative medicine in their view, right? Like your, your ability to have an earlier and more accurate versus a snapshot, right? So he's like, look, she, she had that and was great. And I, and I genuinely, and I've discussed this with James. I believe if she had IPO'd this company and the company had started out as like, hey, she's got this Edison and this finger stick, it would have been this like binary tech play, right? She either makes it or she doesn't. And people would have debated that and fought that out. There would have been the believers and then there would have been the skeptics. But she would have had plenty of time as she gauged how that was working, okay, to find something that generates revenue, which investors are willing to pay for, you know, like with her inflated market cap on the Edison optimism, where she could just do regular lab testing like Quest and, and like LabCorp. She would obviously do it at a lower price, right? But she would sell you the story that I'm going to stick this in the cloud and you're going to pay a subscription fee, right? And that subscription fee to, to that cloud, Yoda, where all your information is and, and, and your general practitioner can, can access it and, and, and whatnot, that's the business. That's where I make money. Of course, what's the problem with that business? And that business is, well, I mean, you're going to be like, well, you're losing a lot of money per test, doing your tests at a lower price than Quest and LabCorp or whatever to to provide this back-end service. Why can't they do that, right? And I mean, like that becomes the same thing because you're going to need the same infrastructure. That's where she ran into issues. She, she, she's collecting data and she doesn't have the lab infrastructure to do it at the scale that these guys are doing. If she'd been like these DTC companies, 23andMe and Ancestry, she could have actually struck a deal where she's like, I'll be the cloud and I'll outsource the testing to them. And I will take a loss on the tests because my investors are going to subsidize it, right? I mean, there was there would have been many ways, but of course she was also trying to kill their businesses. So it didn't work, right? With with her, you know, with her engineering. But like, I mean, the bottom line is, is if you look at it, like it, it it's something where you had a potential business model in that sense, where we would be asking the same questions that you'd ask up in Invitae, right? Like, you know, what can, what are you doing that's different? If you look at them today, Quest and LabCorp, they've entered into direct-to-consumer testing. I can I can go online and order my own tests and schedule an appointment and go pick them up, right? Like, it's it's really like it, it's something where I don't even need to go through my medical practitioner if I want to get tested, and like. I don't know to the degree, I mean, I've discussed this with other people in the medical community on the testing side, and I'm just like, you know, why isn't there a VIP service? Like if I'm, a, you know, if I'm an extremely wealthy individual where they come to my house, do the work, store it in a, in a cloud, and, you know, there's, there's access to my blood work, you know, on let's say like, but well, you don't have to do it monthly, but let's say every three months, right? These, I mean, like, these are obviously options. So when you look at something like that and you, and, and you see what went wrong with this company, her biggest mistake was being private. <laughs> it's like because with her turtlenecks and Steve Jobs and Stanford dropout, I mean, the, the benefit of doubt she would have gotten, if you look at, at the benefit of doubt, for example, that this company in Vitae has gotten, I mean, this CEO says one thing and then he does the other three months later and no, nobody has cared like at all. No one's asking questions. I mean, I don't know if you watch. Have you did you watch the CNBC of the Invitae, uh, the interview with him on CNBC, Daniel? No, no, I haven't pulled that up. Yet. Right, if you watch that, you would not understand what the company does. 
It's like, we are the company that key opinion leaders t turn to. And this, like, he does not say I'm a lab laboratory diagnostic genetic testing company who derives primarily its revenue from doing these types of tests. And we're doing them at a significant discount to a competitor who has had a monopoly in the space for ages. And we're using that to generate volume. And we're hoping to, you know, parlay that into other sectors. And this is, this is like, this is our business model. Because to be to tell you the truth, if you look at this closely, I don't think they figured it out. They're, they're, they're trying to figure it out as they go along, and, and that's part of the problem here. Isn't you you said of Theranos that they could have arguably sold tests below cost, but then put the like? Isn't that essentially what Invitize? They haven't maybe laid out that vision, but they're essentially selling below cost to get into like they could build that into the cloud sort of approach or might. Okay. No, let's not make that mistake, okay? I'm saying that Theranos, if they wanted to, okay, and wanted to pivot for a story to sell that sells well when you're dressed like Steve Jobs and you dropped out of Stanford and, you know, you're a unique character and, you're, you're, and you've got a board that has these people on it and you've, you've convinced, you know uh, – Tim Draper and Larry Ellison to invest in you and whatnot, right? When you've dressed something like that and you've ticked all those boxes, okay, you could just be like, hey, I'm going to do the same same blood work everyone else is doing. I'm going to do it cheaper, so come to me. And how I'm going to make money off of it down the road is I'm going to store that data and it's going to give you a real-time picture. Now, if you were to compare this on genetic information, my DNA isn't constantly changing, Right. So if I'm doing a if if, if my focus is hereditary screening, i.e., you know what's been passed on to me and what does that indicate? Right. What is the usefulness of that sitting there? Right. Number one and number two. In her case, it would be like, well, you still need to build the lab infrastructure to do the tests. You're going to have to do huge volume. So any business that like, I mean, if you listen to the CEO, he literally sits on conference calls and he's like, we you know we hope to we hope to do half a million tests this year and reach a million next million people next year and on our way to billions across the world. Well, what kind of infrastructure? You need Amazon There's infrastructure for that, right? I mean, how many how many how many geneticists do you need? Genetic counselors. The industry doesn't even have the employees. I mean, we were discussing this, like how big is that industry, James? It's well smaller than than I thought it was. I think it's it's in the thousands of genetic counselors. I forget it's you know, 10, 15,000. So you're going to need lab technicians, genetic counselors. You're going to need the physical footprint. You're going to need logistics. I mean, have you looked like part of the thing that, that like, you know, we found kind of interesting is just look at Quest Diagnostics. I mean, there was a $100 price target slapped on this thing. That's the, the market cap mm -hmm. of Quest. Okay. You know, they have 3,500 trucks, like 26 planes, 6,000 patient access points, Right. They have infrastructure to test everybody. The 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 internet bull on this stock. Let's we're not going to use the word promotion. Okay, has basically you know he's been close to management. He's done a lot of write ups on it. One of his write ups was just recently, and I read it. And he's like, I visited the company, and the CEO told me that they're actually paying for the trucks to go to FedEx to pick up the samples and bring them back instead of waiting for FedEx to bring them to the lab. And he's like, I've never seen a company who cares about their customer so much. And it's like, <laughs> like, I mean, 
sorry, logistics are part of this business, you know, collecting the samples and, and the turnaround time and, 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 and what the infrastructure you mm -hmm. need to do it. Right. Like that's not like, that's not something of like, Hey, I really care about my customer. You, it's something you have to do. And unfortunately, Quest and LabCorp are sitting there with huge economies of scale and scope and infrastructure and the same machines available to them and the lab technicians and the geneticists and everything to flip this switch on. And they're not flipping it on. Why? Because right. it doesn't make money. Because the volume isn't significant enough and the cost isn't at that point. So when this company talks about driving down cost, no, they're not driving down cost. Everyone else has a lower cost per test already established because they have higher volumes in the space, right? If you look at it, Myriad's cost per sample is, you know, in the $140, $150 range. If you look across all these other labs, you know, who are doing the, the stuff in uh, the testing on, on the reproductive health, they're all far lower, right? So this is a last person in the space coming in, trying to get to the volume trying to get to the economies of scale and trying to drive it down, right? But they still are subject to the same cost infrastructure limits. It's not Amazon.com. They haven't eliminated the, the, you know, the blockbuster employees sitting that when they're competing against in DVDs like a Netflix or an Amazon or whatnot. They haven't eliminated the, the huge physical retail footprint that a Barnes & Noble needed, right? Like they still have the same limitations, from a cost standpoint, they're, they're relying on aluminum machines, consumables, you know, Agilent, everybody, like, like it's uh, the, the, the vials from, uh, what's the company that sells the vials? Orashore. Orashore, right? Like, you're buying the same stuff from the same people. So, it's, when you look at it from that standpoint, like, if, if they were to sell you a story about data or whatever, it's like, well, everybody else can sell us a story about data. Why aren't they selling it to us? But you know, it's it's an interesting dynamic here because when there was the rebuttal by this this uh, bullish commentator slash endorsed analyst of the company, you know, there there was a comment that hey, it's not just the raw data, it's not just the genetic information that is useful because genetic information in and of itself doesn't tell you enough. Um, about the disease, and I think that's a partial indictment of the whole process. But, but you know, more importantly, what what the analyst said is, what the company does is they take that information and then they combine it with a patient's medical record. That includes, you know, all of their all of their scans, their CTs, their MRIs, all their historical blood tests, all their physical exams, and then it takes that data. And if you get enough of that data, then you can start running. Uh, effectively very large statistical relationships and figure out, okay, which genetic mutations might be associated with which diseases. The problem with that is, as far as we know, that's not what's happening. Uh, and yet the company, you know, again, they've, they've, they've kind of endorsed this, this guy as an analyst of record. The company hasn't come out and said that, that that's not what's happening. Because if it is what's happening, I think there are serious privacy concerns. So I think it's very different if you as a patient send a, a vial of, of saliva into 23andMe, uh, you might sign a paper, you know, some paperwork somewhere, but if they're actually signing away the rights to all their medical records, which again, I don't, I don't believe they are, but again, this is what is, what is, what would need to ha happen in order for this data to be, um, proprietary and useful, then 
I, I would imagine that consumers are not aware of that. And so you kind of have this catch-22. If, if you're getting the data, whatever this guy refers to it as, the golden data, whatever it is, if you're getting that data such that it's useful, you're probably in violation of some privacy laws. Whether or not you are in terms of, you know, you're covered, you're covered legally, I think just uh, patients don't understand that's what's happening. And if you're not getting that data, then there's a very real question as to what exactly is the use of just this genetic information without putting it in, in context, without kind of correlating it to these other disease uh, markers. And again, this is a question that could, that's very answerable, uh, but the company, as far as we know, ha has decided not to answer. I mean, look, there's also two elements of that, right? If you remember also in his rebuttal, he pointed out to a subscription model, right? Where he, he was even saying that this should be looked at from a dollar-based retention standpoint on like a SaaS company, right? So, so like, I mean, again, if he's saying this, it's something that, well, was spoon-fed to him, okay? And that's that's part of the element here when you're dealing with something like this. And you look at that and it's like, all right, so like, I go in, I do a test for cancer, but you know, a BRCA screen, right? And you're say, are you are you essentially saying that you know, in year one, you generated revenue off of, you know, the actual testing, but then in year two and year three, supposedly my DNA is something that just sits there, and they can find ways to make money off of by, you know farming it for some sort of data that they can sell to pharma, right? And it's it's tenuous at best to even understand how that model would work because if you look at the rest of the industry, you just have to assume they're all idiots, right? I mean, how many tests has Myriad done? I mean, look, when you go back to this thesis, Daniel, one of the most important things here is, you know, when I put this on, this company was bigger than Myriad. It, literally, in enterprise value, it was bigger. Than a company with 850 million in revenue, 20 years of testing. Okay, they've done six million tests or something, you know, to, to that effect. I think it is at this point, right? They have a database that they've made a trade secret since 2004, as far as variant data. You know, you're, you, they have four times the employees of Invite. I, I mean, if, if you if you were to look at this company from they're, you know, one notable institutional bull in the space. Like, this bull doesn't own any Myriad, okay? And they have a genetics fund, and they did, like, kind of throw, like, a little bit of a shade at, at, at this thesis when it came out. And, I mean, I can imagine they got a lot of questions because they own a lot of the stock. And they were like, you know, the, these are the companies leading in AI, right? And... And then they like they listed Invitae like two other names, and then they put in their tweet, which was almost essentially directed, "Not my mm -hmm. gen," right? Which, I mean, for someone like me, I just I didn't even really spend much time getting into the AI nonsense. But if you look at Myriad, how many people with machine learning backgrounds and data scientists do they employ? Okay, <laughs> plenty. And you don't, you could just go on LinkedIn, look at it and draw your conclusion. They're not out running around saying, Hey, we got AI. We're doing stuff. You know, we're, 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 we're literally running machine learning models on, on your DNA. We're figuring out better ways, you know, you know, a secret sauce, like who, who would advertise that? Right? Like if, if you actually have made the data a trade secret 
and you refuse to share it and they've gotten a lot of heat for it literally the whole industry had to band together to 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 contribute data freely to clinvar because myriad won't share because they're like hey fine you took away our patent but who cares about that uh our ability to interpret this is better than everybody else at, at this juncture right so you, again you look at it at something like that and you're just like well there's companies who who've been doing this for decades right and you're just supposed to assume that like data science is completely irrelevant to them but the company that acquired an ai startup in july by by september is a leader in the space i mean <laughs> you know so let me so there are a few few directions to go here but the let's quickly touch on myriad it's you're using it as a pair here as I think you mentioned, it's been, you know, short sellers have kind of had their eyes on it. A, a sh somebody like Southern Investigative Reporting Foundation has reported about it. Why, why are you comfortable with that as the other side of this trade, given the fact that they've also come under fire? I mean, I don't know, James, you want to tackle this? I'm obviously a lot more bullish on Myriad than, than most people. I would say, like, I, I c can't really get my head around the short thesis, and I can't get my head around the short thesis in a relative context. Okay, I mean, if you've looked at this space, there there are some companies with some pretty crazy valuations. What, Myriad is not a hard business to understand, right? They have a cash cow in hereditary cancer. Okay, they've used that to diversify into companion diagnostics, into carrier screening, now into these. Uh, Pharma, pharmacogenetic tests, right? Psychotropic, like uh, for depression, which is a very controversial area. A lot of the a lot of the volatility around Myriad lately, let's say the last six months, has been tied to this gene site division and the way the FDA wants to treat these tests. Where I get a DNA test that like tells me, you know, I'm more tolerant for, you know, Zoloft over, you know, Prozac, right? And no science has shown any clinical efficacy yet. And it's a controversial area because there's obviously some doctors and they've been doing, they've been running clinical studies to, 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 to try to get this approved, right? And they missed the primary endpoints on it. But there's also an argument that in depression, which is, an, you know, like opioids, a, a national crisis, essentially speaking, and it's not going to get better, mm -hmm. right? That there's nothing. And something is better than nothing. I mean, two thirds of of antidepressants are prescribed by general practitioners. Not you're not talking about the, the psychiatry side here, right? These are not mm -hmm. these are not experts on uh, on these drugs or on mental health. And the argument is that you know maybe you give them something that starts this out with a little bit more direction, however little incremental it is. Now, when the stock got hammered in the summer on its last earnings was because they said the FDA is pushing back on them on the labeling, right? And then recently there was, there was another ge genetic uh, psychotropic related test uh, company where the FDA allowed them to resume sending the test information, but to the doctors, right? So the patient just gets this, like, here's what your genetics say, but nothing about the drugs, but the doctor actually gets the drug indications, right? And then that doctor can see that and that doctor can use that as part, like as a helpful part of his treatment, right? 
But again, you, you go back to that they haven't been able to show scientifically, and it's hotly debated. I mean, there's there was just recently something in uh, uh, two Harvard doctors had published something in 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 one of the big journals on on mental health. It's the same thing with oncology. You know, the same like outside of of, of BRCA. Like, you know, there was a recent paper basically being like, these other genes are like no better than a placebo, right? Mm-hmm. So this, this is, this is part, of the, part of the problem in the space. But I mean, I, 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 haven't, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I mean, James, do you remember off the top of your head? But I mean, I think it's like 850 million in revenue and like 150 million in EBITDA, something like that against a company with, you know, that did what, like 144 million in revenue last year and, and lost... What a hundred million dollars? Uh, yeah, but, but larger now, right? Yeah, eight fifty, eight fifty trailing twelve months revenue looks like EBITDA of over a hundred million at least. Yeah, so like you, you can look at that. I mean, and this is something when you look at stocks, you know. I mean, I, I was long some Pinterest against a Snapchat short, right? And I thought about closing it before earnings. And the reason I thought about closing it is that you know. Snap is 16 billion and Pinterest is 15 billion. And, uh, you know, Twitter, after its 35% decline, is 18.2 billion EV. Yeah, Twitter's growing slower than the other two, but it's like, you know, three to four times the revenue base, right? Mm. And you got to kind of adjust for that, right? When you get to that point. And you're like, this is a company that is, you know, in the advertising space and it's doing, it's going to do it's whatever its issues is got, it's going to do three and a half times what this is going to do and their enterprise values are you know a hair apart so when you like this wasn't a this is a case where if you would looked at 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 an invite you'd be like this has got to be like a quarter or a fifth of the size of, of like even even if you're a believer and you're willing to buy into the speculation of a myriad right and then the other problem you have with it is that they're interrelated right all the revenue growth that is coming for Invite is coming because Myriad hasn't come down in pricing, right? Mm-hmm. They've been fighting this this price decline because they've had the luxury to fight it uh, as the leader in the space, and they're extracting a premium for their testing because they like you know there's a comp- there's a compelling argument at least from their end that based on the data we have and the history, our tests can more accurately predict what you have as far as a likelihood of a hereditary cancer indication reliably. And it's ironic. And, you know, we were discussing this when we were working on this, like uh, this company throws shade at who? I mean, they throw shade at the DTC companies, right? Like they literally just gave a, a, a scientific presentation at this Houston cancer conference for genetics or whatever, just like two weeks ago where they, they were like, Here's 23andMe's test, okay? And this is what's wrong with it, right? Like 23andMe gives you a BRCA test, right? That only is designed to detect three variants. Basically, if you're not an Ashkenazi Jew, it's useless, Mm -hmm. okay? Right? But it's literally a report that is bundled in with the ancestry, with the health, with with the, with the 50, 60, 70 reports you get for $100, mm-hmm. okay? It's not like you're going in to buy this or you're going to your doctor and you're like, okay, uh, you know, I, uh, I, ha- I, I had breast cancer. I, like I, it, 
like I'm worried about a potential recurrence. It, let's see family history. Do I need to get a mastectomy early because I have this mutation and that's a good preventative measure, et cetera, et cetera. Like they're not looking at 23andMe, right? Like it's a different, like you're competing in the clinical grade medical diagnostics market. Right. But here's this company attacking the DTC companies who are not really their competitors. But then the, it's kind of left and like literally like ambiguous as to, well, what about the guys who have 20 years of history and have the data and supposedly have a higher quality test? Like if I go to the doctor, right? Do I want the lab that is pricing the lowest doing the test or do I want the one that's been doing it for 20 years? Because if my insurance is covering both and I have the choice, I'd be like, okay, well, this test has more data. And even if it's just like a 1% chance that it's going to pick up more variants than they're going to pick up based on the fact they've been doing this forever, I'm going to use them, right? It's a scientific decision at that point, right? And like, that's something where like, you don't hear anything out of it. It's like, oh, are we just supposed to assume it's the same quality? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, like, what's your opinion on that? I mean, James, I mean, like, like, do you agree on this? Yeah, I think I think most of the criticisms against Myriad are a function of a the efficacy of the genetic testing to begin with, as as Alcrum was saying, which obviously applies to Invitae, um, you know, more broadly. B, kind of their their approach to retaining an economic model for their bracket testing. Um, which I think a lot of people thought at the time would lead to their, you know, when the when the Supreme Court decision came down, it, people thought that business would just evaporate, and it hasn't, because as as Arkham said, they do have a, for now, a better product. Um, just the nature of it is is such that the the history of their data has allowed them to, you know, capture a lot more of these variants of unknown significance, and therefore provided a better testing result. And, and so I think. You know, and for a while it was a highly valued stock, though, as Alcom pointed out, as of a few weeks ago, it really wasn't. So, you know, all these things are reasonable concerns about the industry more broadly. Um, and I guess about Myriad specifically, but if you're going to have those concerns about Myriad, then you really should have at least as large uh, concern about Invitae for the same reason. I think, you know, one of the challenges for Invitae, if you, if you look at their stated mission statement it's hey listen we have a bit of a of a different way of approaching how we think about stakeholder allegiance and normally companies say okay shareholders first and then you know customers employees however else you know th those considerations are, are lower down and in vita is very specific it's saying okay customers first then employees so that they can provide a good experience for the customers and then in third place are the shareholders and i think that's great if that's really what they want though clearly they're paying a lot of attention to their stock price so uh, it's not clear that they're kind of hewing to that to that principle but it does make for a challenging dilemma right if you are going to do what myriad does which is hey we have the best data therefore we're going to extract an economic rent based on that data and what a lot of pharmaceutical and bio you know, pharmaceutical companies do, then that's that's a capitalist approach that you know a lot of people don't have a problem with. Some people do, but nonetheless, it's it's fairly common. Uh, if you're going to do what Invitae does, though, and say, okay, we're really here to advance knowledge, and again, 
if we make money on this, that's kind of an incidental, you know, outcome based on what we're trying to do. Uh, and by the way, you know, we've, they've also said, Hey, we're not going to sell your information. If we do, it's your, it's your money, uh, cause it's your information and all this other stuff. So they've really muddied the waters a bit about, okay, if they have an economic model, you know, if they came out tomorrow and said, okay, we're changing our mind, we're actually now going to, you know, we've, we've got something now instead of this kind of amalgam of kind of undifferentiated testing that they, they currently have. If they came out tomorrow and said, Hey, we've got something really special and we're going to make a ton of money on it. Well, then I think that's, you know, they come under the same criticism that Myriad has come under, which is, okay, is that really an appropriate way to use this information? Um, and so, again, it's, it's, it's just it's a tricky it's a tricky space to, to kind of define, you know, what the priorities are. And I think both companies are somewhat caught in that. Re- revenue is growing from somewhere, so I'm just sort of, I understand they're pricing low, but they're... they're it- what do you mean pricing low? It's like 80, 90% below what the competition is at, essentially speaking, right? If you're doing a, te- if you're doing a test for $99 and the ASP that Myriad's earning as of last year on the private insurance side is, you know, blended for the whole business, but let's just say because 95% or whatever of that, 90% of that HDT volume is, uh, is not Medicare. It's eighteen hundred dollars. They're running a promotion this month for ninety nine dollars. If you want to actually get into the actual economics, like we didn't come short this stock when it was five dollars, right? We shorted it when it was twenty percent bigger than than Myriad. And when we shorted it, it the the business had grown forty three percent in the most recent quarter. And if you actually back out Medicare, right, they grew in the mid thirties. That's with everything they've been doing price-wise, which is why they've gotten even more aggressive in entering the NIP space now with an outsourced test to Illumina. Okay, so Illumina Veronata, which has like, you know, the I guess you want to call it the original leading test. I don't really know. I think uh, Natera probably has more market share in in NIPs, but the the they're outsourcing a test because they have to go where there is existing volume. Okay. Those, these markets don't have crazy volume. So if you look at them, over the last 12 months, they actually had a huge benefit from Medicare simply on the fact that they started getting reimbursed for the... They were getting reimbursed for the sequencing. They were not getting reimbursed for the deduplication uh, uh, deletion analysis, which is part of the testing, right? So they were running this, not getting paid for it by Medicare. That added like $500 per test, roughly speaking, over the last four quarters, which they which they are now lapping, mm. right? So this coming quarter, that benefit of getting that per test, right, is gone. So you had a business that organically was growing in the mid-30s. And if you look at the way this company operated uh, this year, they came into Q4, they told you the cash burn is going to follow the same dynamics as 2018. And one thing you can look at it, they had an improving improvement in burn in the back half of 2018, you can attribute that completely to Medicare because that is literally 100% margin coming to them, right? On, on getting paid on, on, on the dedupe. So, and they actually even also got paid last year for dedupes that they were doing in 2017 that they hadn't collected for as well, right? So they come in and they tell you that and you have a CEO who tells you in, in his interview with that analyst, right, that we don't need to go to the, the capital markets for years, years. That's what he said in November of 2018. Then you fast forward when they report on their Q4 
February 18th, you know, so that's like literally two thirds of the way almost through Q1. They, they come out and they say, you know what, our, our burn is going to go down next year. It's going to follow the same dynamics. Let's not say go down. It's going to follow the same dynamics as 2018. That's obviously going to get investors excited because they grew at this rate and they gave the, they gave their targets right of you know 200 million or whatever. So let's call it roughly 50% growth. Even though his aspirational growth is that we're doubling every year for the foreseeable future, which I don't understand how you say that when you're you're growing well below the aspiration, but you've tossed that out there. And literally a week after that earnings call, they raised $200 million, right? Then they report the Q1, you know, in May, which they obviously had good visibility onto going into this quarter. They miss big. And then they say, you know what? Our burn, we've, we're at a point where we can decide to aim to get, to get profitable or continue to invest in what's working, right? More growth. And we're, we choose the latter. And our burn's going to go up 50%. Well, it's like, all right, wait, wait a second. Okay. You know, you just slowed down drastically based on, you know, where you're at today. You're not getting this flywheel. You're not getting this network effect, right? You've actually slowed down your cost of your cost per test as not improving at, at the rate it is relative to the volume. Okay. And your net loss per test is actually increasing for the last six months. Right. So what's happening here? Like that's a deterioration. And that's something when you're looking at when to pick a time to approach something, when a company tells you the burn's going to go up 50% and they're still giving you the same revenue guidance that they gave you when they told you their burn wasn't going to change. Okay. That's a miss. Not only is it a miss, it's a massive miss, right? The stock should have essentially imploded then. And it did drop significantly after that quarter. And it rebounded. And why it rebounded is probably actually another interesting story because you should look at who was buying it. So l- l- jumping just quickly because of present tense now, we're going to be recording this on Monday. I think they're due to report on Wednesday. Where does this go from here? Where do you, you – you've kind of laid out the case. You've kind of laid out the economics. Like what are I, – I, I assume this is not per se uh, – there was the Medicare thing. I don't know if the, the CMS – uh, guidance last week, but is I don't think this is a hair trigger. There's a catalyst, and everything's going to suddenly go. It just seems to me like they're not going to be able to. In your view, they're not going to be able to meet their aspirations, and eventually the market is, you know, within the climate of you called it. We work, so you know, within the climate of revenue growth, it's in everything. Okay, so that's the question for you, Daniel. What like what's the measuring stick, right? The argument here, when you call it a we work, is the measuring measuring stick has changed. So if you look at this has a, a huge retail base. It's obviously, you know, been promoted pretty aggressively. And that base is focused on volume, right? And the top line. Nobody ever is talking about the bottom line or the burn rate. Now, if you look at every single company that's reported in the genetic space so far, I mean, whether it's exact sciences or like, you know, uh, uh, Verisite or whatnot, like these companies are all giving drastically improving cash burn guidance, right? This is the one company in the space. And I mean, you're talking 30 plus stocks or whatever, who just most recently is like, we're going to burn a hell of a lot more money. Okay. And when you look at investing in the context of the current environment, what has, what is, is the market giving zero tolerance for? 
Like we've been asked, are you going to cover your short? Are you going to do this? I mean, it, like the myriad long is up more than the short by like you know almost two thousand basis points, right? If 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 Invite doubled, okay, next week, right? I'm still up on the trade thanks to Myriad. I actually have a t the more difficult decision: do I close my Myriad long position? But when you look at it on on how you measure a stock in this environment, like I would say. I feel it's asymmetric because everyone long the stock is focusing on the top line and everybody else who's in uh, who's looking at this from a business model standpoint is like look your incremental dollar of revenue is costing you more and if that's the case the model is broken okay so I don't care like if you've come down to if you're there they they just ran a $99 discount for you know breast cancer awareness month they didn't run that last year. Why are they running that, right? I mean, we could get into the the, the research that was done on this and the people to talk to in the space and, and so on and so forth. And everyone has the same questions, right? It's like like doctors are not like an insurance companies. It's not like you, you're building brand equity with them, right? If you're coming in and you're saying, I'm going to do this test for $350 and I'm paying $1,800 to Myriad, like I, I'm, I'm going to get some volume. Right, but the market in and of itself, you can't make people get cancer and go into their doctors and get tested. Right, there's organic growth limitations to that market. So when you look at it on what they're what they're possibly reporting this week, like I don't know whether this management team and you know is is going to wake up to this current environment and do a 180. They have said every year that they're going to be profitable next year for the entire time they've been public. I mean, I'm sure they'll say the same thing again if, if, if they're remotely aware of what's going on. But like, how do you believe them? You know, I mean, like, where were they three months ago? They're telling you we're investing more aggressively and we're you know, gonna burn a lot more money. And now they're gonna come back and they say, you know what, we've changed our mind. I mean, you have people who, who are focused on it. Their largest shareholder has pointed out that like they expect them to grow at like a 90% CAGR, which coincidentally is the same, roughly the same aspirational revenue guidance the CEO gives of like doubling, right? How is that possible? Like, is the whole market going to grow? Because are, what they're just going to grow and nobody else, if the volume was to explode, look at Medicare, the total volume for Medicare in, in, in breast ovarian, it was 40,000 tests in 2018. 40,000. That's the whole market for them, right? So like there's a limitation element here where it's like how much lower can you go on price? They could do the test for $5. They could do the test for for $20, but what's the incremental revenue per test, right? Like that benefit of coming down in price is essentially exhausted for them. Where do they go? So sort of the follow-up question there then is that and I, I'll note I, I looked at average yeah, average sales price essentially on their test is definitely going down, but the uh in the last 10Q. But the the question is I remember we talked about Viva this this summer as an example of somebody whose parent you know, your the short thesis you had published and other people had been kind of on and they adapted to that. And I guess I, I understand that Invitai has not publicly adapted yet, but is there, I think about execution stories, which everybody on the long side, it's, oh, this is great that I picked Shopify earlier or whatever, but they also had to get a lot of stuff done right to succeed. 
is there a path for Invitae in your view? You guys have talked about different models they could go or whatever else, but like, is there a way out for them that somehow if they pull the right levers, if they go in the right direction, they can develop into a pro let's ignore the stock price for now, but just a profitable business, a business that could in theory, you know, stick around on the markets and be successful in the longer term, whether or not it's anytime soon. Well, I mean, part of the question on a business like this is it needs capital, right? So this is more of a story about who's investing in it and what they're willing to believe, right? Someone needs to fund you to make it to that whatever hump, right, down the road. And there's a measuring stick. And the measuring stick on this so far has just been top-line growth, right? And that really drastically slowed. And they do have major headwinds going forward on that. We didn't even get into the Medicare, the fact that now like any BRCA test requires FDA approval for breast and ovarian. And there are no currently FDA approved BRCA tests, right? But I think the point with them, like you can't compare this to Aviv. I mean, Aviv was, you know, it's a SaaS, but it was highly profitable. It's a, it's a finite TAM. And that TAM ended up being exactly what it was criticized to be five years later, right? They found other markets to go into, okay? And when they did, if you don't remember, I flipped that long, literally at the bottom of the stock, right? And they benefited from lack of competition. And the fact that essentially speaking, you know, giants and software abandoned the market and they benefited from a ridiculously horrible deal with the platform provider, Salesforce, right? How often are you going to get a leg up on salesforce.com in a transaction? So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to look at that. When you look at this company, I mean, like you, you just say, look, if, if volumes were to explode in the space, then it would become very compelling for everybody else who has the ability to do the same testing or is already doing the same testing to be more aggressive on price, right? If your only differentiator is price, what is that doing for you in this in the, in this field? It's, it, it, this is this is not Amazon Prime, okay? Like I, 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 again, like where's the loyalty from the customer, right? So it can't be that model. It like you would have to look at it and say, sometime in this period they figure something out science-wise, right? This goes back to th this whole conundrum in, in 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 biotech of like the shortcuts, right? On the one end, you had this Valiant model, right? Where we're just going to buy established drugs, right? And then raise the price. That's something investors can measure instantaneously, right? Because what did they see? Huge profits, right? They buy a drug, they raise the price. Of course, as they kept doing that, other people start doing that. And the ask price goes up for these orphan drugs. And you get into stuff like dermatology and whatever. And you have to get more aggressive and you're playing these games. And that's where you get into this like, you know, a hairy area of of whatnot, uh, uh, sketchy billing and and uh, what they were doing with Philidor and all, and all this nonsense, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, I can't build a gigantic, amazing pharmaceutical company without any R and D, right? Even though it seemed like an amazing model, that's that's the one extreme. The other extreme is that okay, I have no science, but the science is something everybody else has. I'm going to basically just rep copy that and I'm going to try to frame myself in this consumer internet. You know, I'm going to pour a lot of capital, lose a lot of money to get market share, right? Th that's where you get these WeWork compares, right? So like everyone was criticizing WeWork being like, well, I mean, it's, you know, 
you're you're renting office space. Uh, there's all these other companies do this, and you're raising a lot of money, and like you know, you buy buildings, you fit them out, and like it, it's not complicated, right? So, but what are you not really investing in? Differentiated science, right? So like, there's a reason there's R and D because like to sit there and sell a story about affordability in in life sciences. Life sciences, if you if you raise hundreds of millions of dollars and you do research, you do expect to earn a premium. You want to charge three thousand, four thousand dollars a test because, well, you burnt you know hundreds of millions of dollars to to figure something out that's cl clinically useful, and you need to get compensated for it. Like you like it, it's just part of the business model, or, or otherwise, no drugs would ever be developed. You know, that's part. That's that's part. I think. To, just to maybe put it a little bit more succinctly, I, I think if they don't develop any sort of patent or, or interesting approach that other people don't have, then it, this will be kind of a low return, potentially viable, you know, to be to be um, to be determined, I guess, depending on you know how they actually use all the money they've raised, but potentially viable, uh, kind of humdrum, low return business. Uh, and and kind of sooner than than not low growth business, if they are able to develop some sort of scientific um, moat through a patent or, or some other reason, then it, that could change. But again, as as Akram said, there's no indication that that's what they're trying to do or that they have any interest in doing that. Uh, they could certainly pivot. They could do an acquisition in that space and 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 try and do that. And maybe that is what they'll do. But you know, as they as it stands now, I think they're kind of yeah, condemned to to fight down the cost curve and and maybe eke out a, a margin eventually, but maybe not. You know, in either way, that's not a that's not a high multiple business. Um, I gotta I gotta hop off though, guys. Thanks, James. Okay, take care. Your question about the uh, the revenue uh, the, the earnings event, right? Uh, was like, you know, what? How how do you? What's the measuring stick? And look, there's a lot of retail in here, and it sucks really because. You know, they get upset when someone writes a short thesis. It's not fun doing something like this. This is not like talking about like streaming or pizza or, or whatnot. Like there's people who've just bought into this thesis who know nothing about the rest of the space. They think that this is the company, right? They like, I, I can tell you tons of people on Twitter. They've never even heard of, of, of my gen, right? It's like they don't know Myriad exists. They don't know this company exists, right? So you're like, you're like, this is just, it's, like from a marketing standpoint, they've got in mind share. And like when you have capital needs like this, that's kind of an important thing. I mean, if you look at this company on the Q2 call, when I actually first started to short some of this, uh, the stock was trading like as high as $32 after hours. I mean, like I think I got some at like $30.20 or something, right? And there's a Q&A on that call. And in the Q&A, one of the analysts is like, hey, you know, your currency is pretty good basically saying your stock price is overinflated. Have you considered doing some acquisitions that are more commercial, more revenue oriented, et cetera, et cetera, i.e. buying something with significant revenue and, and profits, let's say, right? With your current stock price. And the CEO's first words out of his mouth were, well, I think we're wildly undervalued, right? Now, this is a person who, a CEO of a company who in the last three months has increased his shares outstanding by 25%, okay? $200 million equity offering, 4 million shares issued for two acquisitions. All right. He's telling, so like you can assume with the dilution and the RSUs that in the previous three months at a third, 33% less, call it like $19, $20, right? 
increased the share count by roughly 30%, okay? And then two weeks later after that call, does a $340 million convert, which converts at $33, $34, like 4 or 5% from where the stock was trading mm -hmm. after hours, right? We're wildly undervalued. Do you believe him? If he believed he was wildly undervalued, is that how he would be managing his capital structure, right? So- I mean, you got to look at that and, 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 and like, you know, people get upset at, at a short seller, but it's like, just look at the facts, you know, there, it's, it's out there, it's digestible. And I mean, if people did work on this space, it's like, we're like, if you talk to people, you know, oncologists, genetic counselors, academic labs doing these testing, you know, other companies in the space, startups, VCs, like if you do the field research, we did, Okay. You're going to come away with an interpretation of this that is, you know, highly skeptical, right? And we left that out of the report because people are just going to be like, oh, how can you verify this? How can you do that? But I mean, Hedgeye did publish something where they shared like a call with experts in July. And like the comments on, on, on regarding Invitae were like, they must be taking shortcuts. They're making a data play, it seems, mm -hmm. but it makes no sense, right? And you you know you know you talk to people like it's kind of a bit of a black box business model wise, right? So I mean you know like you don't want to sit there and, and say like okay you know shades of Theranos, right? But like when I did those calls, that call, let's say with Quest or whatever in 2014, like you came away with the same thing, right? You come away like if you talk to like when you do experts calls, right? There's an element where experts like can explain what they're doing in a space, right? And they have a high level understanding, whether it's science or or the business models or whatnot. And I actually found a lot of the conversations around this space, particularly in terms of Invitae, incredibly frustrating because the experts really didn't know how to articulate like what they wanted to say about it, right? Like you hit that point where with like someone who knows so much about a space, but like he doesn't want to say that this is, you know, fraudulent or this or that or blah, blah, blah. Like, of course, no one wants to say like something that you can't prove, et cetera, et cetera. But like, w like when you don't understand something, like it's very hard for, for people without markets backgrounds to look at something like this and be like, they're just losing tons of money on a test because they need to deliver volume growth. And that's what's caused the stock price to go up. And the more that volume growth they have that keeps the stock up and that allows them to do acquisitions and that allows them to try to figure something out to differentiate and enter new mm -hmm. markets and raise more capital, right? Like someone will be like, okay, but that makes no sense. Why would investors invest? Well, because you've called it the Amazon of genetics. And for most people, like their research stopped kind of at that point, right? They're like, I'm going to get Amazon right. rich. I just got to be patient, right? And it, this is something that'll happen over five years. I'm a long-term investor and that, that, that. And this business is being like, from a capital standpoint, it's being run to keep the lights on. So like when I look at earnings, like I read the fact sheet of one of the large institutional holders. They're like, the stock has come down from, you know, where it was like 30 after hours on a beat, right? People are like, they beat, it went up. Okay, well, why has it dropped 50% since then? And it's like it dropped 50% because people have doubts over whether they can hit their 500,000 test target for this year and 1 million for next year, right? That 1 million is an aspirational number, right? Of course, the CEO, as recently as the most recent call, stated it. 
My question on something like this is, if they were to do 1 million tests, how much money would they need to go through to hit those 1 million tests? Because they're losing, as of the first half of this year, in the $450 per test range. Let's just say it drastically improved or whatever. And you, you come down to you know, 250 like amazingly. I don't know how that happens in the next couple, like literally weeks and months, right? But let's say that was to happen just miraculously. Like you're still going to go through all the cash you've raised already by next year. You're, you're coming back to the market for capital and that's dilution, right? And it's more significant dilution and, and you're back to the same questions. So it's one where it's like, what's the measuring stick in this environment? And like, if you look at this environment right now, like nobody has taught, like this is the equivalent of, of a startup company type business model that's really capital intensive and it's being run aggressively to simply pursue growth. And if they change that, we've seen that even at the rate that they're burning in the first six months of this year, growth drastically slowed. So let's say they change it and say, hey, we're going to focus on improving burn or whatever. Then you got to change this whole assumption around the top line, right? This is not a 90% CAGR, right? This is a 25% CAGR or a 20% CAGR, right, on the, on the top line. And if that becomes the case, well, then, you know, are, do the people who own 10, 20, 30% of this company, if you look at very closely at, at the institutional ownership, are they, are they investors anymore? Because that's all they've been telling you that they're investing in it for. It's just going to grow outrageously on the top line. That's, it's thematic, right? Okay. Yeah, that, that sets it up pretty nicely. I mean, I mean, how do you view it? Like, if you look at something like this and you think about it, like, this is where, like, when there's nothing fun about shorting stuff like this, when you see that the people on the other side of the trades aren't really your, you know, like, some cutthroat hedge fund or whatnot, right? You see that there's, a, you see that this has attracted, like, the Roku and the Arista and the Pinterest and the NVIDIA type crowd, right? Growth. It's this micro cap that, like, you know, had this quick spurt which can happen in these micro caps people don't get that like you get a little bit of a demand imbalance and there can be a short-term big push in the stock and that happens and questions get raised and it's all of a sudden you're the bad guys and you're like look i mean we're long stuff here we're short stuff here we're making an objective investment decision based on empirical evidence and, you know, common sense type questions any investor should ask. And these questions aren't asked, they're not put to the management team who, you know, seems to just be able to say whatever they want and not be held accountable. And like th that, that's when you get into a dangerous area here, because like if, you, if you're going to stick Amazon.com in your investor presentation and you're running a laboratory diagnostic business like this. You don't have a working capital benefits. You're not, you don't have a different cost structure than other existing labs. You're new to the space. You're trailing everyone in volume and revenue and diversification of portfolio. Like they're talking about getting into somatic cancer testing, right? And that they've been working on it. Like you're coming into a space with like 20 players. You're the last one, right? Like, but you have a lot of investors who are in your stock who've never heard of any of the companies in the rest of the sector because you've been marketed 
and 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 that's one thing where like i mean where in terms of the let's say the stock promotion element uh, of, of looking at something like this where we raise some questions after the fact it would have been very easy to ask questions before the fact after the fact being like look why is a person an analyst of record for one stock who writes about hundreds of stocks right like this it, it's a fair question to ask why does that one person have direct access to management like why is every thesis an article written about the company like an exchange or an interview with the ceo because the, the retail investor is generally under the assumption that hey if someone has access to management that access is an advantage right like that is generally a view right so it's like oh i'm paying whatever a month to 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 get this research and this research this person talks to the ceo whenever he wants he can pick up the phone he can send him an email so like why would what why would anything he's saying not be true and i i know this before everybody else and I have this access, uh, so I feel comfortable in the stock. What is this, you know, short seller anonymous or whoever, you know, bringing to the table? What uh, three months, you know, essentially of work across the whole industry and twenty years of experience in in, in terms of trading and across long short in every space? Because it's like, oh, it's a short seller. No, we're long myriad. We're, we're being objective here. I can't figure out what's going to happen in genetic stock valuations in, in, in the long term. But I can look at this business model and say, in this environment, it's the riskiest one in the whole space. Because there's so many questions that are unanswerable. And I think that's where the, the other thing that's just interesting is you see as a pattern, you see with biotech companies, for example, where people associate the stock with the goal and goals in biotech are usually quite noble or healthcare in general. And I think that is something that you're, uh, that's sort of what I was trying to get at earlier with that question around sort of the compared to Theranos too, is, is there's that noble goal. And there's also the fact that healthcare, you know, there are pathways for innovation, but it's not, it's not the easiest. You think of, you know, let's say, Airbnb disrupts the hotel industry because they come up with a new way to sh stay when you're on vacation. Okay, like there are things that are stodgy that you can or can't stay. Uber, you know, I think Uber is an interesting comparison here because on the one hand, like taxi cabs were very stodgy and Uber disrupt them. On the other hand, what I think is maybe more relevant is that Uber is kind of a kamikaze mission uh, where I wouldn't want to be long the taxi companies either, but they've kind of added a ton of supply and disrupted the market in a way that's fine for consumers, but not necessarily exciting for investors. And I think of that a little bit here too, where the consumer may or may not benefit from increased supply, but the, and I don't, you know, you've made the case for Myriad. I'm not rehashing that, but like it makes the rest of the industry, you don't want a company like this in your space. I think because it just adds like even if they are not going to make it over the long term, the fact that they're getting that capital and that they're I always say this about the car companies with Tesla, like the fact that Tesla is getting a longer leash than Ford still doesn't make me happy if I'm Ford. And so that's that's sort of that and the sort of the nobility here are the two interesting angles, I think. Exactly. Right. Because if they're getting that capital, it's not going to the people who are just taking their time and doing the R&D and running trials, right? Like if you take uh, Gardent Health, 
very popular name in the space. Uh, they're about to do a hundred million dollar colon cancer trial, you know, for recurrent biopsy testing, right? Like they're going to spend a hundred million dollars to try to prove it works, okay, for their for their for their diagnostic test, right? Uh, that's that's something that's going to take time to measure, right? But pricing something that already works at ninety nine dollars once when someone is selling it for eighteen hundred, okay, and saying, well, these two things are essentially the same, right? Even though historically speaking. The, the person at $1,800 is negotiating with insurance companies and getting that market rate, right? And you're negotiating with insurance companies and you're getting, you know, a $300 rate, right? So you have to price at a huge discount for the insurance companies to do business with you, okay? And if you're running your business in that sense, unlike Uber, where like the consumer has these benefits and, and whatnot, like... You look at the space and you say, if you're making it very difficult for everybody to make money in laboratory diagnostics, and that's we we didn't even get into all the fraud that's occurred in the healthcare system with genetic testing, right? They're like literally out there recruiting senior citizens just to get their saliva because labs need volume. There's a lot of small labs, and if you can't make money, you got to enter into this process of creating this demand. And creating demand in the healthcare right. space is dangerous, right? Because like you 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 are creating incentives where like I get I get bad test results or you know I'm scamming the system and stuff like what just happened where where CMS tried to kill essentially the early stage cancer and non cover it to basically being like hey it needs FDA approval we're, we're we're punting to a regulatory dynamic what does FDA approval do right it makes it harder for these podunk labs to get into the space, right? There's a lot of things where you look at it and say, well, you've essentially just tightened the regulatory environment, right? Because you made it so hard for anyone to make a legitimate dollar in the space because you're being subsidized. That's the whole point. And you're being subsidized for what? Well, what's at the, other, what's at the end of the rainbow? That, that pot of gold, Amazon.com, Right. Amazon.com. You're gonna, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna buy it, you know, a, a teeny little company, and it's gonna go from twenty dollars a share to mm -hmm. two thousand, right? You just need to wait a decade, right? Trust us. Well, okay. Well, how are you like this company? In no which way, shape, or form, from anyone looking at it from a financial, economic, business model standpoint, you have nothing in common. You're exact opposite business model. So, like, like you said, with with an Uber. Or or Airbnb, or even a WeWork, you know, who's really hurt outside of investors? Nobody really else, right? In terms of the like societal damage. But in the healthcare space, you're taking money that would be going to businesses that are really focused on the science and the long haul. Like I look at this company and I'm like. Why are they in such a rush, mm -hmm. right? Like, why does it need to be run this way? Like, if this is a long-term story in genetics, like, why do you feel like you need to enter the, the NIP space right now? Why do you need to go to $99 for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, right? Like, what's, like, why do you need to hit, what, why are you giving aspirational guidance on, on volume? Nobody else is doing that in the space. Nobody's like, oh, we, we, we need to hit this volume number, that volume number, that volume number. No one's doing that. 
So why is this one company taking that view? And like they're taking that view because that's what they started selling from an investment narrative standpoint. And they've kind of locked themselves into it. And like th th that can lead to dangerous outcomes in healthcare. You don't want labs basically being like, you know, we can't make money on this testing, so let's not do it. Or let's cut costs on this, this, and that. Like you should be able to earn an economic profit of actually doing the laboratory mm -hmm. diagnostic work. Like I shouldn't be looking for ways to not pay my lab techs as much or locate to another area or use, you know, cost cut and cut corners on certain materials. And like, no matter what anyone says, if you, if, if the profits aren't there, like you create incentives for this. You, if, if I'm a sales rep and my company is giving me really aggressive every year volume targets, okay, I can't make cancer appear, right? So like the, you're creating an incentive, even if I'm the most compliant and stringent company, at the surface, I say, hey, we're the cleanest, but you know, we got the toughest regulations, we won't tolerate this. But then we tell our reps, uh, our sales folks, hey, you need to hit these targets, right? So I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a dynamic where you're like, all right, well, like the pressure on these guys is going to increase and increase. And what's the only lever that they have to pull? So far, it's been price. And you can only, you, you can't go to zero. You're at $99 for certain things. You're at, you know, 20% uh, of, of what Myriad's getting from the insurance companies, right? How much lower mm -hmm. can you go, right? And it, once you once you enter into that, you're, you're, you're kind of stuck. Uh, you know, you, you you have to do a 180, and that's where you look at it. And you're like, well, I mean, are they just going to come out and be like, look, we're gonna we're gonna slow down here a bit? Like that's what they should be doing. I mean, if if, if I was advising this management team, I'd be like, look, like 180 right now. Yeah, your stock's going to come down. So what? You come back down to like ten dollars, eight dollars, a billion dollars is a very generous valuation for this business, right? Your stock's going to come down. People are not going to be happy. But if you're trying to make progress here and here, okay. You know, there will be investors who will give you the time. They, they, they still do exist, right? But like if you're, if you're running on this and you're going to keep running on this on the back of, you know, hey, we're Amazon and we're, we're going we're, we're, we're to chase retail and retail money. And like, I mean, like that's a... Like, like, why would you want that type of shareholder base? You know, well, because they're they're the least sophisticated. Like, there, I mean, there are some science-based investors in this thing, but like, I mean, like, there's an element to it where you're like, all right, but like, look at the bulk of the ownership and how it's structured, and who's been the marginal buyer, and you're like, you know, there's it, it, it's it's the retail investor who gets hurt here. And they get hurt here because there's promises here that are made that are are hard to back up with any evidence. Like a CEO can say whatever a CEO wants to say, and you know, you no know, one's gonna come out and be like, oh, he's lying. But you can look at it and say, well, the, you know, CEOs are typically bullish about their business, but look at what they say and then look at what they do. And if a CEO tells me I'm not gonna raise capital for years and then goes and raises five hundred million in the next eight months. <laughs> you know, and if he tells me every single year I'm going to be profitable next year, and he burns more money every year, right? Like, I'm like, why are you promising this stuff? Like, you don't like you're 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 not running a, a boring, you know, 
cash flow, near-term business. You're sitting here talking about we're revolutionizing the genetic industry and we're going to change it and it's going to be one of the biggest you know, growth stories and everyone's going to have genetic information and this, this, that. And, you know, it's a multi-decade business type, type, uh, type of model we're building, but I'm running this like on a quarter to quarter basis based on my share price. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely a mismatch there. Well, I mean, it's, it's like, again, it goes back to WeWork. I mean, did you, like, if you've read the articles, like, and you've seen like, you know, people, some people are like, Hey, you know, Adam Newman created a, uh, an $8 billion company. That's a major accomplishment. Right? And then you got other people who are like, yeah, but he spent $10 billion right. doing it. Right. <laughs> you know? right. So, I mean, you, you look at these guys and like, they're like, they burned through $700, $800 million, you know, between what they've, what they've issued for acquisitions and, and what they've like lost in actual cash. And when you put that together, it's a staggering sum when you compare it to the capital that other companies in the space have gone through and the type of science that typically comes out of those companies. Yeah. I mean there's nothing there's nothing fun about something like this as far as doing that because you know like you can look at this like this company has employees like uh, it, like you they all believe in the mission and if you stick out a mission statement I mean again we can go back to Theranos people believed in what they were doing, right? We're going to change something. Preventative medicine is a noble cause like you were saying. Like once you put like it's so dangerous to marry the social enterprise concept to things, particularly in the healthcare space, right? Because the healthcare space in the nature of R&D, if you're doing science, does demand a level of profit to be extracted down the road, right? It's not an altruistic enterprise. People die of diseases that can't get treated because they can't afford it, right? And there's the that that you, you to get around that fact right you would have to have someone who's making it all free and if the r&d is all free who's going to fund it right so you have to be able to charge something you have to be like it's it, it's not popular but you know if i if i discover something i got to be able to monetize it right yeah and that's where that's it's just it's just another example why healthcare is just kind of a weird fit for these sorts of companies because there's just it's it's like a it's like you said nobody else is playing this game but it also makes it hard to actually build a sustainable model around it because just of what it costs to actually get stuff done. Yeah, it's it, it's the creep once you bring the this Uber WeWork type of approach into the space like I mean, I, I you have to look at it from let's say a competitor standpoint, and like, and I did talk to people across the space, but like, you know, you obviously take anything a competitor says with a grain of salt. But like, if you look at it and and you say I, I I'm running my business one way, and I look at how these guys are raising money, like, does it get tempting for other companies to be like, hey, I could do that, right? I can sell that story. Like, why don't I sell that story and get my stock price up? And get the capital and actually invest it in this type of, you know, whatever R and D, right? And I, I think for many of them, it's like, well, because it's a bit misleading, right? I can't compare myself to Amazon because I I don't have that advantage over these other labs. I don't want to say this on data because it does raise certain issues, right? It is a fine line to walk. So what when you get to that and you're like, well. 
okay, but if something like like this model perpetuates at this without scrutiny and without being asked these questions, then other people in the space are going to look at it and be like, well, okay, I mean, like this is how you raise money. I got it. Like, why? It's so hard for me to go raise a hundred million to run this strategy. It's the same thing in, in in investment management, right? You go to a person and you say, "I guarantee you this return." Eh, you can raise so much money, right? You go to them and say, "It's a grind, you know, and we're going to be long stuff. We're going to be short stuff, and you know, we're going to do a lot of primary work, and it, it's it's going to take time. And even then, I can't I can't guarantee you it's going to work out." It's like, okay, well, there's a lot of other right. options to do that, right? So once you, once you say guarantee, like you, get, like you do something for people. Once you say, hey, we're the Amazon of this, you know, investors are going to be like, okay, and I, I know what people made in Amazon and I'm, I'm willing to take a punt on this. And if, if, if management is sticking a comparison to Amazon in a presentation, and this stock analyst is is calling it the Amazon of genetics. That you know, it's a validation, right? I call you the Amazon of genetics, and then here's an investor presentation. You know, six months later, and there's a slide that compares me to Amazon. Okay. Yeah. 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 Done. I'll put my money in, and then a short seller comes along, and they're the worst person ever because the they've shorted the stock and they've dared to be like, hey, just ask your own questions, make your own decision. Like, I don't care if I lose money on this trade, right? Because I did the work, right? And objectively, I didn't approach this and say, hey, I want to short this company. Now it's shortable, right? I came to this and I was just like, why is this trade here? Okay. Then you do a lot of research and then you take a view. Then you do more research. And then you're like, you know what? Like part of this narrative is that it's framed this way. And like someone should ask questions and there's a lot of people who are going to get hurt in this stock if they don't have the opportunity to make this investment decision on their own. Like here's what a sophisticated investor looks at this. These are the questions they're asking. I have no problem with a management team that's going to come out and be like, look, fair enough. These are, these are, these are real questions. These are what investors should be asking. And here's how we'll answer them, right? This is, a, this is what we're doing. This is our strategy here. This is, like, I mean, going back to what James was saying, like on the disclosures, like everybody else breaks it out. Like, why aren't you showing us where it's coming from? Like, you've got transparency in your mission statement. You know, you literally say we're focused on transparency. All right, provide the data. Like, let people see where your revenue is coming from, how, like, what are the drivers? Like, I, like, it, it was to me remarkable that this Medicare event that just happened, like, nobody, who's following this stock was discussing it, right? And if you look at the, the the profits relative to the rest of their business, Medicare is a subsidy for them, right? Because the Medicare pricing is, is set. Uh, it's And by PAMA, I mean, it's going down 10% a year. And then next year, it starts to go to 15%. But it's literally set. So their margin there is actually super high. It's like, you know, it's close to 80%. So that means the rest of the business's gross margin is super low, right? And when you consider that, you're like, okay, this is something that you should have been aware of risk-wise. Why isn't this being discussed? Like how like let's say the decision was to non-cover, right? I mean, 
in, in retrospect, like the outcome was was still kind of negative. It's 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 more stringent. You have to have FDA approval, and there's no FDA approved test. But the volume in the space is so low anyway. It it's not the most consequential thing. But let's just say it had been non coverage. Medicare is like a, a huge source of cash for a, a ridiculously aggregate cash burning company. You know, why aren't you looking at that closely? Or why isn't management telling you know their investors very clearly? We were reimbursed for this by Medicare over the last 12 months, which we weren't getting before, which for the next year is a major headwind. And the aggregate Medicare price is going to drop by 10% for both parts of the sequencing and the dedupe, right? So we actually have for this coming year, a cash burn drain from Medicare, right? Versus what had been a huge boost. So adjust our business and our business grew 30 five percent in the first six months and we have these headwinds to look forward to fda approval now uh the uh the 10 percent pama decline lapping the, the uh dedupe uh reimbursement and we're discounting to try to hit these volume targets and have bought brought our pricing on dtc and we've entered the uh the nips market you know at a gross margin essentially loss right but what, on, on a cash pay of $99 for a NIPS test that you're probably paying Illumina two to $300 for, right? Minimum. So like, if you think about that, it's like, all right, like give them what right. they need to make the decision. Don't leave it ambiguous and say, we have aspirational guidance and we'll keep you updated. And we're, we, we hope to one day treat billions of people. And, uh, you know, we, we put our customers first and, they, and our stock is cheap, but okay, we're going to go raise money. Like if you look at this, they bought this company, Singular Bio. The RSUs on it are $90 million. The That's a cash pay for 12 employees. Half of it vests on a time-based pay, uh, structure starting in December, $45 million, in less than a year. So in less than a year, and the performance ones, if they get paid, in less than a year, they're, they're paying out $90 million. As the stock price goes down, the cost of that in an equity standpoint goes up, right? So like that's literally if the stock was to trade to a billion dollar market cap, like $10 a share, like that's 10 million shares they need to issue, right? To, to 12 people who like were doing this like, you know, special type of uh, uh, way of, 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 of looking at uh, mo- uh, molecules and to try to give kind of uh, potential cost advantage down the road. And they're all going to make the type of money to to be able to go do whatever they want, right? In twelve months, you know. So it's like how exactly like how are you locking them in? That's not exactly a very compelling way to lock in uh, a developmental technology team, right? By giving them literally, you know, each guy makes five, six, seven, eight million dollars. So like it, this stuff doesn't jive with like the message about the business doesn't jive with their with, with what they're actually doing financially okay we've given a lot for investors to kind of chew over and to the questions to ask i think we've got to we've got to stop this here akram but it's been enjoyable uh going through this there's a lot obviously a lot of work behind this and a lot i i think the story and just the implications of the healthcare that fast growth model etc and then obviously we're recording this on monday like i said earlier the call will have come out right before we release this podcast. So it'll be interesting to see how things 
I mean, I honestly genuinely hope it goes up and that gives these people an opportunity to exit. You know, like I, I really at this juncture, like like that's the beautiful thing about a pair trade. Like you're 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 kind of covered. And like I look at this, I'm like, this is going to be a single digit stock no matter what. So it takes six months. It takes a year. If this thing can bounce back and and uh, give some give some retail investors uh, who have recently bought into it as it was exploding uh, a chance to have make an informed decision at least right like with this out there like they haven't been blindsided essentially like this, from from where I put this out you know the stock had traded almost to these levels anyway from when we published so it's kind of just been hovering around with plenty of opportunity to, to make your decision I mean versus my cost basis at like 25 or whatnot so like it's it's one of these things where you're just like, you know, who who really cares about earnings? You can't really even call it earnings because there's going to be no earnings. It's how much did you burn uh, to hit what volume number, and you know, uh, is this going to be more of the same out of you guys? So I mean, like people people are so focused on an earnings event, like it's going to be like some sort of. And I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of stuff on Twitter and whatnot after it. Like, oh, there they go, they they beat, and it's like. Who cares? Right. <laughs> you know, they There's... beat what? They 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 beat on my loss expectations, and like that's all I care about. And they've showed me no reason to believe anything different. So, like, they literally would have to change their business model. So, do you expect them to do that here? Are they going to respond to that immediately? That kind of confirms like the the criticism of them. I I seriously doubt it. Right. Okay. All right. Well, any last disclosures before any other stocks mentioned need any disclosures before we hang up? I'm long I'm long okay. Nvidia. I think okay. I mentioned that, which I think, you know, some people may find interesting at the end of the day. Not to be confused with NVTIA. Right. I was yeah, I'd say we didn't get to the NVDA versus NVTA and what you have against those letters, but uh we'll have to save that for next time then. Right? Talk about a coincidence. But I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the chip space looks good and we can maybe well, we, maybe we do our next podcast on, on why I was willing to get long uh, what I was short a year ago. Yeah, that would be good. All right. Great. Thank you so much, Akram. Good talk. And thanks. He's no longer on, but to your colleague James for joining us on this. And uh, we'll do this again soon. Okay. We'll get a next episode to get to. So.